0: Welcome to the Augustine Podcast, a conversation about the life, thought, and work of St. Augustine of Hippo. I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. My guest today is Dr. Han Luin, Cancer Comline. She is the Marvin and Doreen DeWitt Professor of Theology and Church History at Western Theological Seminary. She received her PhD from the University of Notre Dame. She also holds an MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary and a BA from Wheaton College. Her research focuses on early Christian theology. Many of her publications concern topics in Augustine or his relationship to other thinkers ranging from Ambrose to Cyprian to Karl Barth, she also has published on more recent figures such as John Calvin, Juergen Moltmann, and Eric Shavara. Cancer Comline's research has been supported by a number of fellowships from the Fulbright Commission, the Louisville Institute, the Augustinian Institute at Villanova, and the Humboldt Foundation. Her current book project, The Idea of the New in Early Christian Thought, analyzes how Christians of Late Antiquity conceptualized and defended the innovative character of the Christian faith. Dr. Cancer Comline also serves as co-editor of the International Journal of Systematic Theology, IJST. She is a theologian in residence at Pillar Church and is a minister in the Reformed Church in America. Today, we are discussing her work, Augustine on the Will, a Theological Account, published by Oxford in 2023 which received the Lautenschlager Award for Theological Promise in 2020. Dr. Cancer Conline. Thanks for taking time. Like I said, I want to hear about you and your work. I have not gotten through your whole book, but I've read a good bit. It's it's quite a beast. <laughs>
1: uh, it did take me a long time to write it,
0: so. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Well, let's start. I just want to hear about you and your work. You said you're in Holland, Michigan. What are you doing there, mm-hmm. sort of? What's what's going on in your life? How long have you been in Michigan?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I got here in 2014, um, came here while I was still working on my dissertation, actually. So I was over in Germany and um, in Heidelberg working on it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, got invited to come over and do a faculty fellow position for a year at Western Theological Seminary. and yeah my husband got invited at the same time to teach at Hope College so oh, nice. we had a bit of the two-body problem but we thought wow this alignment is truly incredible so we came over to Holland Michigan and finished up our dissertations and did some teaching and then one thing led to another and we're so thrilled to yeah both be on the faculty at Western Seminary now and been here for almost a decade. It's Hard to believe.
0: That is crazy. You said 2014. I was like, oh, that's very recently. Like, <laughs> you know, that's a decade. Yeah. Um, what does your husband teach?
1: Um, he teaches church history and he does. He specializes in U.S. religious history. So he teaches the second half of the required church history sequence and then also electives and runs our THM program. So, yeah, we collaborate a little bit in our work here at the seminary
0: cool that's fun so you said heidelberg maybe go back like where are you originally from you actually sound midwestern but where are you from how did you get into to theology how did you get to heidelberg what was going on there
1: yeah so i'm actually from the east coast i'm from new jersey but really spent so much time in the midwest it's kind of fun to hear you say i sound midwestern yeah uh, yeah but grew up in new jersey and then I came out to the Midwest to live for my undergraduate degree at Wheaton College. So that's okay. where I experienced the big Midwestern culture shock and adapted to a lot of things. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. So Wheaton and then, um, let's see, thinking how to, so explaining how we got to Heidelberg. we. Ha- we have spent, my husband and I both, a number of years in Germany at various transition points in our academic careers. Um, so Heidelberg was one of those. Okay. Um, but after Wheaton, we spent a year in China teaching English.
0: Where uh,
1: at? Yantai on the okay. coast.
0: Yeah, I spent a year in Chengdu.
1: Really? Uh, yeah. Well, that is really neat. Wow. After undergrad or at Yeah, one-
0: right after undergrad.
1: Okay. Um, yeah
0: my, I think my parents lived in China for seven years, which is crazy, but uh, yeah, they just, I was, I was going to do my master's, and failed to get in-state tuition in South Carolina, so I'd like lived there for my undergrad, but then had never removed my license, so I was paying out-of-state fees, and I thought, I can't afford this, so I I went to, to China just to teach philosophy and English, yeah. Wow, oh, that's
1: so fun, yeah, that's quite the experience, right, to, um... yeah. I felt especially like coming out of being a student in the undergrad setting and then right afterwards entering into an MDiv program, it was really interesting to sort of sit on the other side of the desk or stand on the other side of the podium, not sure what use, but um, I found that like really energizing. So then when I went back into the student role, it's just, oh, I'm so eager to learn and absorb and yeah so I was I really appreciated the experience for a lot of reasons don't know if you had a similar one but
0: yeah oh yes oh I loved it yeah Good.
1: Yeah. Okay. yeah awesome
0: well, so you you went to Wheaton did you say for your undergrad in MDiv
1: um so I went there from just for my undergrad which okay. was in philosophy oh yeah Your part of your bigger question had been like how did you get to being yeah. interested in Gustin so I think that was a step on the journey though I will say it took me a long time to come to Augustine. Yeah. I remember my dad even like gave me a little copy of Augustine's Confessions as a teenager, but I don't know. I, I never really resonated with it earlier in my life. Um, But then did a philosophy major at Wheaton and got into towards the end of that. I just felt like I loved all the big questions of philosophy, but also felt like it was re- a little constricting to not be able to draw on biblical revelation, like from a Christian yeah. perspective, thinking that that was so important in addressing a lot of these bigger questions and wanting to be able to really tap into that. Um, so I guess in a way it was like k- kind of, I saw it as a kind of broadening, like p- approaching the same questions, but from a theological angle. And then yeah. uh, then China then um, went to Princeton Theological Seminary for three okay. years okay. for the MDiv, um, which is wonderful experience and then went back to Germany Tübingen um, <clears throat> to study. with Christoph Schroebel was my
2: yeah. mentor
1: for that, but also got to know um, Flochat Rehkel, who's been an important um, colleague and mentor as well. Um, and then did the PhD at Notre Dame, then back to Germany again to nice. Heidelberg. And then just this past year, we've been in Germany a third time. So that's sort of wow. been an- all the the educational
0: trajectory at least good good that's great that's lots of bouncing back and forth yeah it's a lot of fun (laughs) one of my one of my friends from undergrad actually is he's finished PhD at St. Andrews that he did with Schwobel and of course sadly is now doing it with not sadly that he's doing it with Judith Wolf, but sadly not doing it with Schwobel anymore Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. but yeah I love that experience
2: Mm
0: -hmm. good that's a lot of bouncing around what What was it like sort of going from philosophy to theology?
1: I think I just am so grateful for the education I received from my undergraduate professors at Wheaton in philosophy Um, because I there were I guess a lot of things going on I mean I felt like some of the big questions um who are we why are we here what is the meaning of life could continue working on those um but also So my philosophy work as an undergrad really equipped me, I think, with a lot of tools that were so helpful subsequently um, in seminary and beyond, just in theological inquiry. Like the the Wheaton philosophy major was set up so that there were three basic movements. You'd start with um, the first layer, and they were supposed to build on each other. The first layer was just interpreting these great texts, um, taking the time to listen analyze really pay attention to the details how are they constructed articulate this in your own words and then the second step was like okay step back and critically evaluate what's being said but of course that can only come after you take the time to understand what's going on and then third how can you build constructively on what's been said and so um just the preparation to move through those three steps analyze text carefully think through questions was so useful. So I think it was sort of a natural kind of transition from
0: philosophy to theology. Yeah, yeah. Good, I'm glad. I think mine has been similar. I mm-hmm. cherish the tools. At times I, I resonate with what you're saying. Like this sort of seems like I'm playing with one hand behind my back. Like mm-hmm. I've got some thoughts, but we're just not allowed to talk about them. Uh, yeah. And I think that's, I kind of liked us existing in yeah, the fifth century where those distinctions don't really matter yet.
2: Mm-hmm. but. Mm. I do
0: struggle sort of translating it out of, Mm. out of patristic work and into contemporary philosophy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. But now you're, you're fully a theologian. What do you do at Western and sort of how would you define your work?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, you, you named it, I am a theologian. And this question sometimes does come up because I also teach church history one at Western Theological Seminary. Mm -hmm. Um, but was trained in a theology department, so definitely approach even church history from a very theological angle. I'm always interested in those questions. Um, and yeah, my title is um, Professor of Theology and Church History. Um, and I would say I I come at things from like a center of in early Christian theology, but I'm definitely interested too in contemporary questions systematic theology i teach that as well systematic theology okay. one um yeah so i'm always uh as obviously
0: I'm, some protestant theology based on your wall art
1: <laughs> you're seeing calvin in the background yeah yeah this is this hung in my grandfather's office wow. so yeah yep I, I so i like having it here it reminds me of my roots calvin also my grandfather um yeah yeah yep
0: makes me feel a little bit better I was like that's a very (laughs) large picture of Calvin just to choose (laughs) to have in your office
1: (laughs) it totally is yeah yeah and to tie this back to um Augustine I remember in seminary being in a class taught by Elsie McKee on John Calvin and just like being mesmerized by it um and coming up to her after class and being like so where who are, who are who's Calvin's most important influence and like where is all this coming from what are the sources and i remember her saying well you know augustine's pretty important for for calvin so i love that too just exploring how augustine augustine's legacy is mediated to us his influence on other figures in the tradition
0: yeah absolutely no you can replace calvin with pretty much anyone in that sentence and the answer (laughs) remains the same (laughs) yeah Good, and I assume you like it there if you've been there nearly a decade. Oh,
1: yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, I think it's a place where, um, <clears throat> like the all my academic interests are like really valued, and I can engage students on that level, but also there's a sense of larger purpose, um, that we're here to serve the church and think about how all this can be brought to bear to help the church flourish today. So, I just feel like it's um it's really meaningful meaningful work and yeah we love it
0: good i'm glad so what was your sort of first introduction to augustine aside from your dad giving you a copy of the confessions oh, that you didn't read well,
1: um you know i feel like that line augustine has that's so famous from uh book 10 of confessions where he's like late have i loved you that's me and augustine late yeah. have i loved augustine late did only late did i come to augustine it wasn't till seminary, actually. Um, <clears throat> but I had a number of wonderful teachers who really helped me um, get to know him for the first time. So um, Ellen Cherry, who's now retired, I did a master's thesis with her and um, read through De Trinitate with her on one-on-one in and independent study. So that was amazing. And um, just digging into his theology, um, took a class with John Bolin, which oh. was so, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to read through a lot of Augustine text for the first time and I remember him We we spent some time on ad sim and the Augustine's change of mind there. Good. And I remember being so skeptical. I don't know why, but I just thought, like really was this <clears throat> was this single word really so pivotal p- pivotal and like is this really did there was there really as dramatic a change of mind as he wants us to believe? I was yeah. total skeptic, which in retrospect is so ironic because I've come to be very persuaded of how crucial that change of mind was um but that was an important course yeah and then um even like Elsie McKee and just um thinking about Augustine's influence on the reform tradition that was really important and George Singer, Bruce McCormack, all. Yeah. So it all sort of worked together from a lot of different angles in seminary.
0: Mm -hmm. Good. So you you got to Absent Plugianum. And then where did this Augustine on the Will start? Was that your PhD?
1: Mm, Or was that another study? Yeah, I was not one of these people who go into any phase of my education, really, but also not into my doctorate, really having a clear plan of exactly what I would write about, kind of open to exploring and learning, and so there was so much opportunity for that at Notre Dame. Um, yeah, but actually it was in a, a paper I wrote for my advisor, um, Brian Daly, and um, was writing about uh, some of Augustine's anti-Aryan writings that uh, nice these don't get a lot of press. It's sort of like, you know, we're past Nicaea at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, it, those in those writings, he was um, he made some comments about the human will of Christ that really were interesting to me. So I wrote this paper for a class for Father Daly about um, the human will of Christ and how Augustine affirms it in the context of this controversy. And then he was like, "Ooh." You should maybe like pull that out and work more on that so i did a another paper for the oxford patristics conference on the on this topic exploring Um, how this idea of christ's human wealth developed over time in augustine comparing him a bit to maximus the confessor um and then it kind of grew from there where um also in conversation with my advisor um who's so encouraging is like yeah let's make this bigger talk about the, the will in augustine which I feel like maybe that's kind of unusual that it, an, uh, an advisor would encourage you to make a topic bigger rather than yeah. smaller. But um yeah, it sort of grew out of this more focused study and, and then became, uh, there was a larger question about the development of his understanding of the human will more broadly.
0: Yeah, like I said, it's a beast of a book. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those books that you're like, do we really need this book? Like, surely there's books on Augustine on the will. And I would understand, yeah, Augustine on the human will of Christ in the Arian controversy. That sounds like a good a good book for me. Uh, just to say Augustine on the will. So I assume it the current version is more than what you got done at Notre Dame. And if it's not, just lie to me. If you if you did all that during your PhD, that's fine.
1: Well, really, I um a lot of the work of producing the book was like cutting things out, cutting out latin, um shortening it down. I and mean, I know it's still so long. Oh, but I I am really grateful it was just issued in paperback. Like I just got the paperback oh, delivered to my home last week. So I'm so grateful because um maybe partly cuz of its length it's, and just because of um university press monographs being so expensive. Generally, yeah. um I'm really glad it can be printed and made available at a more, much more reasonable price yeah. so um, yeah yeah so yeah. a lot of the work was just um, uh, shortening it um, but the the key argument stayed the same. I had some helpful feedback from um, a couple of peer reviewers about the framing at the beginning so tweaked that a little bit but really it wasn't a case where there were a huge number of Provisions.
0: Awesome. That's great. I'm envious, but that's great. My PhD will be just as comprehensive.
1: Uh, Oh, I'm sure it'll be terrific.
0: It will be passing, and that is terrific. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so give me the the sort of synopsis. uh, For those who haven't read the book, what's the argument? Uh, Give me the the five-minute overview of Augustine's theory of the will.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the 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 thing that I'm so grateful for is that the structure was just able to um, be presented in a, in a way that's like thematically logical as well as yeah. chronologically logical. So I wanted to trace how his thinking about the will developed over time. And there's this whole debate, you know, about continuity or discontinuity in Augustine, of course, mm-hmm. so like, How should we think of him as a radically discontinuous thinker where um, his early and late self can be pit against each other? Or should we see him as more um, of um, working out insights that were present initially in a way that's compatible with his previous thinking? And I think uh, one way of looking at the book is kind of an approach to that question. Um, Mm -hmm. And offering a both-and kind of answer through this model of thinking about how he developed um, as uh, neither like a um, rejection, an outright rejection of his previous views, nor this development whereby nothing substantive really changes, (laughs) but more of a layering, um, a deepening and a layering. And I think um, that's where these... Images that he uses and the thematic focus, where we go through creation, fall, redemption, eschaton over the course of the book, uh, we can I think we can see his thinking developing according to that schema. We there's a yeah. way of reframing the early stuff not as irrelevant, wrong, um, outmoded, obsolete in light of his later thinking, but rather like reframed and recontextualized. So yeah. his early views of the will even though he talks about it in a sort of undifferentiated way, like this is just how the will works, like um, on the um, a de libero arbitrio, on the free choice of the uh, of the will. It's not like on free choice. It's not like um, that description becomes totally irrelevant. But when he says that the will is like very autonomous and can direct itself, this right. is like later reframed. Okay, it is relevant, but it applies only to this, this certain phase that will as it was created. And then more and more layers are added on over time. So there these additional dimensions build and develop his understanding more, um, but don't render the previous phases obsolete.
0: Yeah. Maybe not obsolete, but yeah, in need of some revision. Because there are some bold claims that sort of just have to go. Right. but mm-hmm. the like that the will is autonomous and not acted upon by external Things, like yeah, but also
1: right. Well, yeah, the I mean, um, the idea that it would be able to swing like a hinge between good and evil. I think he does retain the idea that that's that was part of the um, the, the capacities of the will as originally created, but then subsequent to the fall, that's no longer. An accurate description of how things work.
0: Yeah. Um, can I ask you? I didn't look it up when I was reading. Is that just a pun? Like, is that why he calls it a, a hinge?
1: Hmm. Um. Cardo is the Latin word. Right.
0: Is it just a pun on the hinge of the heart? In some, like, I don't know. But uh, that's all I thought. Is I would not be surprised if this is a pun.
1: Oh, interesting. Mm. I
0: didn't. I didn't look up where it's from, but. I okay. I caught the, the Latin parenthetical just today as I was rereading the conclusion and I was like, huh.
1: Oh, yeah. I hadn't really considered that. Yeah. Um I'm not sure. Yeah.
0: So yeah, what what do you feel like stays the same? Um what are the things that, that really develop and maybe you know, why? I mean
2: mm. there's
0: there's definitely a different sort of focus, but it's not like Augustine did sort of creation and cosmology and then Uh, was done with it or anything like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. So what sort of, what sort of makes this an organic development? Uh, Yeah, and what do you feel like is added to and what's taken away?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think, um, so Augustine's mature idea that the will is impacted when God pours out God's love inside the human heart and changes the will from the inside. That's definitely an added feature that's not present from the beginning. Right. And that gives us sort of a hyper theological account of how the will works and what moves the will. Um, But I do think it's true from the very beginning. Um, His Thinking about the will is always theological. I mean, when he's thinking about the created will, he's developing this in dialogue with the manichees. Yeah. and um their understand their um more dualistic understanding of the universe. And so he this is that's the polemical context for his earlier understanding. and he's still like talking about God all the time when he describes the will and its created nature. So that part abides. The theological context is there the whole time, but it is true that you, we get like a more and more expansive role for divine agency operating in and with the human will over
0: time. Right. And when you say those mature views, like what is are there texts that you think of? I know you mentioned uh, the City of God as like mature views in the eschaton. but uh, I'm just asking for my own lit purposes, sort of what's the the last and most mature development of of Augustine's take on the will?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I would see, I see Ad Simplicianum as the single most important turning point in his thinking on the will. Okay. Right. And I see subsequent developments as all sort of like present there in Nuche and he's just working out the details subsequently. But I do think in the late writings of the Pelagian controversy, like um, Contra Julianum, his um, unfinished work against Julian, we see like this getting the role for God's grace getting really, really big and okay. human statements like um, just really minimizing the human contribution. So that's perhaps like the most, um, Extreme version in terms of maximal divine agency towards the end of
0: his oeuvre Okay, good. I I yeah. Just asking. I haven't read it. Uh, yeah. not mm-hmm. got there. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: that's good to know. How kind of how arbitrary does it get? uh Because I I know even in the beginning he's he's dealing with well not the very beginning but he's dealing with Romans nine. How arbitrary does it it get, with just everything mm-hmm. being God's choice of acting in your will.
1: Mm. You know, um, I do think, so, while You're I
0: You're a theologian, so I can, <laughs> I can expect you to answer these things.
1: You know, yeah, I mean, I do think in his late writings, he's sort of really strongly emphasized, really strongly emphasizing what God does, and, like, little more of, less of an emphasis on human agency, but I do think throughout his writings he is looking at God's involvement and our involvement in a non-competitive way and I think that one of the best places to see that worked out is in his preaching because that's where you have both elements held together I mean he's just saying don't don't take credit for the good that you do. That all comes from God. And pray, pray to God for help because you cannot do it alone. You need God. That's on the one side. But, but definitely point, do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's not like, and then just like sit back and enjoy the ride and just like, um, you know, put your feet up and relax. No, he's like, you have to work at this. He has this great line in one sermon, like, don't just like lie on your back and open your mouth and wait for God to like drop the food in and then say, and now God, please chew it for me. He says like, no, like you have to get up, you have to try. So I do think, um, in the end, especially we can see as worked out through his preaching to his people that he's definitely not advocating a view where, um, human involvement is totally evacuated of any significance and effort is unimportant and right. it's all being controlled by a puppet and God is arbitrarily deciding things based on God's whims. I, I, I don't see that as the picture.
0: Yeah. It's emerging. No, not at all. It's something I'm continually butting into as I feel like the sort of the treatises and the more theoretical work seem to leave giant sort of paradoxes like this. And then, yeah, you go to the sermons and it's just imperatives and bold Mm -hmm. claims about what you should do and why you should do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So that's that's helpful. Can I ask? Oh, go ahead.
1: Just to to build on what you just said, I, I see it the same way. And I do think there is an element of paradox in his mature corpus for sure. And I would also see that as one that has roots in the biblical canon itself, that we find both streams of this, um, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Just like we have it even just within Paul. It's not just like Paul and James, but even within Paul, we have both of these elements. And I honestly, I think, that paradox sort of co- corresponds to human experience
2: mm-hmm.
1: and how um a lot of things in life are beyond our control, and we can sense that there are you know larger forces operating on us Brandy. um but yet what we do does matter, so I think um, yes, there is this there is a sense of paradox, but that that like it's a thick sense, thick experientially thick biblically,
0: yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I've been looking at a lot of sort of identity and ethics and keep finding these great claims where it's like, oh, we cannot know who's saved and we cannot know goodness and we can't know Jesus because, you know, scripture is always hard to interpret and sacraments are mysterious. And we just like, there's really no room to make sort of ethical systems and do politics, which would be great if he didn't, you know, live the other half of his life doing ethics and politics and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm. That brings up a question, though. This is sort of a a big work, and when I say that, I don't mean like page numbers. I mean it's a giant topic. Mm. Uh, sort of like Mary Keys put out a book, and the topic is something like pride and humility in the city of God. Mm-hmm. It's one of those where you're like, how is this not written, and who is audacious enough to write it? Uh, mm. Mm.
2: Mm.
0: But how do you how did you go about? such a comprehensive work that sort of looks at the whole of his corpus. I mean, how do you even begin a project like that?
1: Mm,
2: mm.
1: Yeah, well, I I would say I don't feel like I was a John the Baptist sort of like a lone voice crying out in the wilderness. With I had um, other scholarly treatments that were tremendously illuminating and helpful mm. to build on and to learn from. And I would say um, Sarah Byer's book, um, was, so she comes at it from a more philosophical angle, and I certainly have some disagreements with her interpretation, but also learned so much from her. Yeah. So it was a wonderful um, source to have to engage with. And then also Lenka Karfikova, as we mm-hmm. had Grace and the Will. Um, so it's, the focus wasn't squarely on the will, but still there were There's lots of draw So having those two tremendous um, works to really lean on and engage with. And that was helpful because both because there is like a lot of overlap in the subject matter treated, but also um, being able to come at things from a different angle and offer what I think is a maybe complementary perspective that's quite different from what they had to offer. So that was...
0: Yeah, you seem unpersuaded by the more stoic Augustine. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't want to um suggest that stoicism was unimportant for him or not playing a role. However, when when people start to make claims like this, you know, the stoic influence was important for his thinking on the will to the exclusion of this being a biblically Influenced or determined conception. Yeah. That's where I start to want to offer a different perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And do you feel like the Stoic bit maybe is stronger in the the beginning and is something that's tempered down as he gets into anti-Pelagianism writings? Or there seems to be more sort of yeah, let's stop and mediate and make sort of Stoic decisions, right? In yeah. the, in the early writings.
1: Yeah, I think there's more of a sense, I mean, um that like so um Sarah Byers would say the Augustinian voluntas or will is pretty much equivalent to this impulse towards action in Stoic right. theories of motivation, the Horme, which is then a it's a product of assent. So, I think that that probably corresponds the best with his earlier views yeah um and then doesn't take into account i mean that that account doesn't really have a category for space for the influence of god on the will (laughs) so that's where um it's maybe a helpful uh structural starting point but then We just have to broaden the frame and consider a lot of like much larger factors and their hugely influential role.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I was surprised reading your book, how much influence there is on the Holy Spirit in the will. Mm. Uh, Not Augustine's most famous contribution to early theology. Right. But there is some sort of pneumatology there.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. When we talk about, okay, what is actually going on when God influences the will? How does this work? And it turns out to be that um, God is pouring God's love out into our hearts. What is that love? Well, the Holy Spirit. So this is um, a really deeply pneumatological view of how human moral motivation works and how human willing works. yeah Yeah, absolutely Uh and
0: that is that something that sort of develops later as well i mean i know obviously like the the early dialogues are less sort of overtly theological even if they have that distinction to them or less overtly biblical but even just sort of incorporating the holy spirit into the discussion yeah where where does that occur yeah Uh, maybe why does that come in
1: yeah yeah um i think one of the places we can see it come out really clearly is um, On the Grace of Christ, which is a treatise from the Pelagian controversy. And here, I think, so I I try to strike a balance in the book with whereby I don't want to suggest that Augustine's views on the will can be reducible to um, negative responses to polemical partners in the Pelagian controversy otherwise. That said, I do think that polemical dialogue creates, um, occasion for Augustine to become much more specific about, about things. And I think in describing, for example, okay, what does grace mean for Pelagius in his view? Uh, I'm not going to make a claim right now about how accurate that is in recent debates, but, um, how how are we, how does he contrast that against his own account of what actually grace is? And I think that treatise is like a terrific place where he just drills down on that. He says, like, hey, we both use language of grace. Now let's ask the question of what we actually mean by that. Is it a, is it an ability? Is it knowledge that we're given? Is it the law? That's how he would characterize Pelagius' understanding. Or is this actually an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that enables us to do the good? So, totally, yeah, yeah, I think the Pelagian controversy is a key context for his developing understanding of the holy spirit's role in human right
0: life. yeah absolutely like you say you don't want to reduce everything to to polemics but even i think even augustine basically says in the distractions that this sort of develops in seemingly contradictory ways because one part was needed in the beginning and mm. we didn't need to have a robust account of grace and the holy spirit back then so there was more on independence and freedom is that right am i misremembering this
1: um I mean it is it's interesting how he, I think one of the reasons that um it's a, a strong argument in favor of the of a more discontinuous interpretation is his own description of what happened in yeah. Ad Simplicianum. and it is pretty dramatic like he just it's almost like a you, you know his little Damascus road experience where his very change of mind about how the will works resulted from a concrete instance of that where he's being gripped by um, the grace of God in his thinking about this and almost like even though he hadn't really intended to go in that direction and as he would say in the reconsiderations was like struggling to come to a different perspective the grace of God prevailed on him so yeah It is pretty dramatic how he carries You can't
0: argue with that. <laughs> tell me about, thing of Augustine's sort of uh, conversion moments, tell me about the will in in the Confessions, in Confessions 8, the sort of divided will language. What's going on there? Um, I know he wrestled with Romans 7 more overtly earlier and later, but sort of what, is, what do you see as this divided will or um, impotent will, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um it's this is one of his changes of mind that's kind of interesting. Is Romans 7 is sort of initially thinking this is um this describes the um person in the pre-conversion state, pre um outpouring of grace where there's this drastic struggle, the very thing I do not wish to do, is that that's the thing I do. Um, and I think in Confessions, we see in like the struggle leading up to his own conversion, we see that kind of uh, tormented pull yeah. <laughs> uh, in both directions, a struggle. Um, but then I think it's fascinating to see how, as time goes on, he comes to see this struggle also as just sort of an ongoing element of christian existence this side of the eschaton that we can't really leave these radical struggles behind us and for that reason conversion is also something that has to be continual and occur again and again um and so we see in confessions this paradigmatic conversion episode yeah in his life and also like in the tradition writ large it's been so influential but then it's interesting to also to think about how um, his is a uh, later description of how this is not just like a one time thing, but sort of the pattern of Christian life.
0: Hmm. Yeah, the most uns- unsatisfying thing of you've got this conversion and then it's like next page and who am I and what am I doing? <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. yeah. I, love I
1: know how, you. Oh God. Oh yeah, I, I just love how um, a lot of his sermons will end with this phrase, "Conversi ad Dominum," let us turn ourselves to the Lord. And just thinking how um, this is worked into the structure of his worship experiences with his congregation, and just reminding them, maybe it, perhaps they were physically turning at that moment too. But just that this is kind of the rhythm of the Christian life. This continual reorientation and returning um, ourselves to to god
0: yeah absolutely one more sort of pointed question is in all this what do you feel like is sort of the relationship between these slippery words of will and love Mm. like is there is there ever a clear sort of distinction or understanding because that I'm I'm working mostly in the confessions and the Trinitate and the City of God and in those they're just sort of pick whichever one you want at the time.
1: Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I talk in my conclusion a little bit about the relationship of those two terms and how they we should um, think them think of them together and how yeah. you know, they need to be. <laughs> um united in our reflection on augustine and the will yeah um so i think somewhere he maybe says like the will is a strong love i think so they're like it's really honestly i have devoted quite a bit of time to trying to come up with like hard a hard definition what is the will for augustine and uh, uh, draw the lines clearly between um willing and other like cognate concepts but in the end this project was kind of interesting because I sort of had to let go of that yeah really not his interest um and I think that um I don't know at the end of the day I think what he has to offer is not sort of like water watertight descriptions of okay this is exactly how we're going to do it um, that's less his contribution than this like larger narrative framework for approaching things. So at, I guess at the end of the day I would say I do not have like a a really sharp philosophical answer uh, to that. No, one. that's okay. And I also don't think that Augustine really offers one either.
0: No. Definitely not. Definitely not. I was looking just this week of like doing revisions to to a chapter on the Trinity and like trying to be very careful with how I use these two words. And that's why it's, it's on the top of my mind. Cause I was like, I've, I've got nothing for like, here's what your definition of love is yeah. except for maybe his comments on first John, like,
2: mm. and
0: they're uh, mostly giving, but even I asked, cause in your conclusion, you mentioned like, the will is definitely a desire to possess or attain, right. To, to be one with something. And so often, love is a, a giving up, and a, a non-possession, and a non-attaining, mm. uh, but these two are definitely moving together, right?
1: Yeah, right, right, and he do, does describe love as a drive towards union as well, Yes. so that, there's, that seems to be a parallel with willing, and I'm so glad you mentioned the context of his Trinitarian thinking, because I think that's one place we can go to see just how closely these concepts are related to one another in his doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I mean, you yeah. can talk about the Holy Spirit as um, you, you can describe the, the Holy Spirit in terms of Wallentas, and mm-hmm. also as love. So yeah. the fact that um, theologically these terms meet in the person of the Holy Spirit, I think, is significant too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was, I just was just looking back through that introduction or conclusion. <laughs> I did appreciate the the comments to Origin uh, and Gregory. I've been working through them on the the side with just doing seminars here. Uh, didn't realize the the emphasis of free will and Origin being so unique as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if, I mean, of course Gregory with with love and the spirit. But
2: mm-hmm.
0: that's really good. Um, I could I could ask you lots about the book but I can also just read the book but let me ask you (laughs) what what are you doing now that project is done sort of what have you done since what are you working on now
1: yeah yeah thanks for the question so um in the intervening period I've done a lot of just like essays bringing Augustine into dialogue with other figures which is really fun and stimulating I mean everyone from like some some of it was like uh, that I worked on my, in my dissertation was more thinking about how he relates to earlier figures, like in Ambrosius, Cyprian. Yes. Uh, the doctrine of grace. So that was kind of illuminating and seeing, oh, like he may be more new than we thought with respect to extra Christian thinkers, but less new than we thought in relation yeah. to earlier Christian thinkers like Cyprian. Cyprian's doctrine of grace. that Like I actually find his claims that Cyprian anticipated him. To be like pretty compelling. So Hmm. um, some essays on earlier thinkers, like more closely related to my dissertation, and coming out of that, and then later thinkers also like Karl Barth. um, So maybe of interest to you, working on Augustine in your context. Um,
0: So I'd definitely be interested in your thoughts on Bonhoeffer saying, basically, freedom is for us to will the will of God, and it just be this sort of like Mm -hmm. divine imputation of I, Mm -hmm. you know. You hear it and you do it, and there's
1: sort Mm -hmm. of the
0: mind shuts off. Uh, Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, the mind shuts off.
0: I mean, (laughs) I'm not a Bonhoeffer scholar, so I won't say that, but it seems like there's sort of no choice to be had. Like, Mm -hmm. the human will just Mm -hmm. becomes completely passive or automatic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've looked at, at Bonhoeffer on the will.
1: I have not. I do think there, from what you've said, though, that there may be some um, common ground to the extent that Augustine, he's really not, this is not like a libertarian view of freedom at all. He thinks, and I think argues persuasively that um, freedom is not the same as having choices. And that ultimately, we are going to be stable and firm and fixed and unmoving, so to speak, in our love for God. And that doesn't, Decrease our freedom, but increases it. At the same time, I would think he's trying to get away from, like, he, he wouldn't want to see us as robots or right. puppets that are just controlled and, you know, we, we're not actually personally um, invested in this direction of our willing at all. And I think for him, for Gustin, part of the way he secures that is we are always going to be remembering and retelling in praise. The story of what we went through and what right. God has done for us, and so this is like—I uh, don't know—maybe that recollection, that memory, um, also helps to make to enliven this this stable, willing, and personalize yeah. it too. I have no idea how Bon what Bonhoeffer would say to all of I don't either.
0: This is just hearsay. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's
0: just what I hear around the office. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm I'm curious as to to how those work out. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll ask Bruce when he gets here. He'd know. There's also like a dozen Bonhoeffer scholars uh, in this building, so I could just do my homework. I just didn't know if you you had any thoughts. Good. So you're doing constructive stuff, um, looking okay, at I'm modern theologians.
1: Your larger question. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and then my my big big project that I'm working on right now is um, a book on the idea of the new in early christian thought okay and this um i'm just loving it it's been really fun so I spent a year in tubing in 14 months actually just coming off the sabbatical wonderful on this with folker as my host so that's yeah. kind of the big project at the moment good
0: what do you mean by the new
1: yeah um so this comes out of uh actually like a question from a peer reviewer on one of my publications on the pelagian controversy
0: just number two yes
1: because <laughs> um the the in the pelagian controversy they were like there are a lot of accusations that augustine was coming up with this teaching on grace that was unprecedented and no one had yeah. ever said this before and this is novel a novelty that's dangerous right so the reviewer was like oh, comment on like novelty more generally at the time So this got me into some of the secondary literature and i just think it's such an interesting contrast to today how the prevailing assumption in this early period was um coming out of antiquity was older is better so um that is sort of the backdrop for this question then um how but at some point a transformation happened right because that's no longer the assumption that people have and how did what does Christ, early Christianity have to do with that change of mind so the new construed quite broadly like um, just how do how does the question is like how does Christian theology change how, how people evaluate newness and innovation sort of generally um, but then I'm focusing on specific 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 um statements that early Christian theologians make about newness New theology. theological in their character oh
0: that's yeah that's very good that sounds fascinating and it's worth worth reading I probably need to read it <sighs>
1: oh well it's sort of it's definitely expanding my focus a lot more I mean this is definitely augustine will figure but figure in it but it's not a book about Augustine, yeah. so really exciting for that reason, and just takes some time to work through all.
0: Absolutely. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my last two questions are, first, what work of Augustine's should we be paying more attention to? You've at least, like, worked through the whole corpus. Um, uh, Posidius tells me not to believe you, but you've at least uh, worked through lots. So, what do you think we should be paying more attention to?
1: You know, um. So actually, just recently, I was reading through um, On the Instruction of Beginners in the Faith, De Mm -hmm. Catechizandis Rebus. That work is so amazing. I was just so moved reading that. I think particularly if there may be like listeners to this podcast who do that work of teaching theology. Yeah. I think this book is so illuminating and so relevant to timeless questions like like what do you do when people feel disengaged or you feel Mm -hmm. discouraged in your vocation and like um how do you present a huge amount of material to people in a compelling way and like where should our focus be i i just um think it's a beautiful work of um just reminding us of what our priorities should be and just
2: Um, showing
1: um, a heart that's full of love as a teacher and just how important and powerful that is in teaching theology be like focus on love you're like how important it is for the teacher of theology to be loving god and then also to love the students and that getting getting them to love god that's that's kind of what this is all about i mean it seems basic stuff but he's so eloquent in how he explains all of it so that would be my top recommendation currently
0: That's good. And that's a good one. I've had a couple of people on lately to talk about catechesis Mm
1: -hmm.
2: uh,
0: and is not, it's not my wheelhouse, but is absolutely fascinating. And uh, I mean, teaching theology is something I do, but the the actual church catechesis is not, but they've been really good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And in this case, I guess the audience is folks who um, are sort of interested in the Christian faith. They maybe know a little bit about it, but haven't fully committed to it yet. I can't even quite be labeled Christians. So that's interesting too, just in our context as um, in North America, as society continues to develop is like, uh, how also do we present theology to folks who maybe aren't really fully committed to this yet and have a lot of questions. And how do we approach that task?
0: Yeah, good. And secondly, is there a a good secondary source that you'd recommend? Something (laughs) recent, if possible.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, I feel like Augustinian Studies just continues at, like, such a a rapid pace. And there's, like, always so much new stuff coming out. That's why I'm
0: asking you, because I can't keep (laughs) up.
1: Well, maybe, like, okay. So, depending on how we define recent, I one book that I want to keep spending more time with and I think will stay with us and be a kind of classic is Michael Cameron's Christ Meets Me Everywhere. I just think that's one that's going to be worth digging into and savoring. He writes so beautifully. It helps get us into Augustine's theological interpretation of scripture, which is seeing a lot more work, but there's just so much room still there. And that's like um, such a meaty text by wonderful interpreter of Augustine. That would be a a top recommendation is one to keep digging into. As um, so far as stuff I've read that's come out like really recently, um, Kevin Groves' um, his book on memory in Augustine is
0: yeah.
1: really creative um, and fun to read, and creative yet also persuasive based on <laughs> Augustine's primary texts. So that's one I've really enjoyed. But if if I would, were giving to someone just like my top read on Augustine, that's a secondary source, um, John Cavanini's essay on Book Two of Confessions, that's also been, it's like in the Reader's Companion to Confessions from quite some time ago, but also okay. in a new um, collected volume of his essays called Visioning Augustine. Yeah. Which that essay is one of my top favorite essays. Period. Um, and certainly on Augustine. Like if I had to recommend to people one secondary thing to read, it would be that essay.
0: It's just It'd be that essay. Yes. Um uh, Yeah. Did you work with Cavadini at all when you were at Notre Dame?
1: Yes, I did. Yep, he was one of my teachers there and he was also on my committee. Yeah. So wonderful. Very
0: inspired by his work. I talked with him, I don't know, maybe six months ago. And mm-hmm. he was I don't know, not at all what I expected. I think I told him this. Uh, I just said, like, I don't know. I've never met him. He's just in the footnotes of every book I've read for the past 10 years. So, you're like, I don't know what he's going to be like, but he was perhaps my favorite person I've talked to doing this podcasting. Uh-huh. Just because all the time he was like, I don't think Augustine would like me. I don't know <laughs> what I'm doing. I'm just more concerned with teaching my students. and loving the lord but i'm not very good at that like the whole time it was just amazing
1: <laughs> oh that's you you do a good impression
0: <laughs> oh good <laughs> oh
1: yeah uh you know I, that yeah he, he's so he sort of embodies the kind of augustinian ideal of humility that we all talk about and think about a lot yeah. oh that's great uh, yeah. uh, that essay i don't know it just it sparkles And I feel it's such a narrow topic, too. But the thing is, I think I don't know if you've read it, but it's like to me, it brings out these larger it almost can provide um, a model for how to approach his entire project and think about what he's doing, thinking about how his theology is like pointing in a very personal way rhetorically powerful literary powerful way but back to the mysteries in the biblical text yeah. itself yeah. i just think it's,
0: it's, it's one of those essays that i it feels like augustine like mm-hmm. it gives you the taste for it mm-hmm. um, okay. i think rowan has a couple of those in his collection as well being like
2: mm-hmm. yeah i
0: feel I feel like i do when i read guess mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's good thank you thank you for taking time to talk it was great to meet you
1: Likewise, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation and for this podcast. It's really cool. I got to listen to a a few episodes like because I was preparing for this and you do a really lovely job. It's so nice to have these out there. I'm I'm planning to keep listening. You're doing good work. Good work. Really appreciate it. Thank (laughs) you. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Joshua. Take care.
0: enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Han Lewin Cancer Conline. If you are interested in hearing more about her work, please go buy her book, Augustine on the Will, a Theological Account. Yes, it is a beast, but it is wonderful. Also check out her recommended works, Michael Cameron's Christ Meets Me Everywhere, Augustine's Early Figurative Exegesis, and Kevin Grove's Augustine on Memory. As always, I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. Our theme music is Oh Great Light by Jess Ray. Thank you so much for listening.